You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in the book, in the Bible, to the book of Acts, and we'll be looking together at chapter 13. You'll find this on page 921 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading together verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of God. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Well, here Luke begins the second half of the book of Acts with Antioch as the headquarters. And of course, as we've seen in that city, there was this thriving church, well-organized, amply supplied. And so the center of operations now shifts from Jerusalem chapters 1 to 12, to Antioch. And the central figure also has shifted from Peter to the Apostle Paul. And this really begins the story of the gospel mission to the end of the earth. There have been breakthroughs. We've seen the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw Cornelius the centurion, even the Gentiles in Antioch. But now a new, more organized, more intentional phase begins. And this local church, led by the Holy Spirit, saw the need for witness beyond itself. How important is that for every local church? To look beyond itself. And too often, I think, we churches are tempted to become inward-focused and be selfish. And that's very unhealthy. Well, till now, the mission has been restricted largely to Judea and Samaria, but now it spreads in earnest to the world at large, beginning at Antioch. And so in this text, we find the official start of the greatest missionary work in the history of the world. John Calvin says, here follows a history not only worthy to be remembered, but also very profitable to be known. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, formally set apart for his life's work. And it's a reminder of just how vitally important the work of missions is. As Gentiles, I look out and I think most, if not all of us are Gentiles. I could be wrong with some. As Gentiles, we were strangers to the covenant of promise and alienated from God. Alienated. 
And though Jesus accomplished the salvation, it would be of no benefit to us apart from missions. The Holy Spirit is pleased to use and to call use missions and to call sinners to Christ through preaching. And so Barnabas and Saul are commissioned to preach the gospel throughout the world so that those who were near Jews and those who are far off Gentiles are called. And these two men began a movement that has continued to the present day. So this commission of Paul is of tremendous consequence to us. The leadership in Antioch included prophets and teachers, and five of them are named. Saul and Barnabas, I think, are very familiar to all of us, and they'll play a very prominent role. But not so well known are the other three. In fact, we know very little about them. There was this man, Simeon, who was called Niger. And Niger is the Latin word for black. And I'm speculating at this point, but he may have been a black man from North Africa. Most commentators agree. And in fact, some think that he is Simon the Cyrene who carried the cross for Jesus. And if this is true, then it's no wonder that he was prominent in the church in Antioch. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus and highly esteemed among the early church. And isn't it wonderful that he as a Gentile was instrumental in the first mission to the Gentiles? Then there's Lucius of Cyrene from the northern tip of Africa, perhaps the very same place as Simeon. And if that's true, then the church at Antioch had a real cosmopolitan flavor. It was a multi-ethnic church, ideal as the hub for international missions. Because here we have this living, breathing illustration of the power of the gospel. It transcends cultural and ethnic barriers, and it brings us together in one body. In the church, in other words, we can see the great reversal of the curse at Babel. Despite language barriers, despite ethnic barriers, we are together as one in Christ. Well, then we have this man called Manion, who's described as having been raised with Herod the Tetrarch. And that word, lifelong friend, was used often of boys who were taken into the royal court. They were brought in to befriend and share the privileges of the prince. They had to give him friends. So Manion was virtually a foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. You know, the one who beheaded John the Baptist, the one who treated Jesus with such contempt. But what this means is that Manion was of considerable social standing, a friend of the king. And it not only adds to the cosmopolitan flavor, but it highlights the sovereignty of divine grace. Here were two boys raised together with the same teachers, same benefits. One had the honor of becoming a useful and well-respected leader in the church. The other is remembered primarily for his shameful conduct against the church. And these two men were both sinners and yet differentiated by divine grace. That's the only explanation. 
Mannion was chosen. Herod was not. Grace made the difference. And when Christ referred to his second coming, he highlighted this in terms of the final distinction. This is what he said in Matthew 24. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So in other words, in this age, we are mingled together in our cities and our fields and our households and people live under the same circumstances and they enjoy the same benefits. They are of the same age. They live in the same place. We have the same employments. And yet, on that final day, even the closest of relationships will be divided. That's what he's saying. Oftentimes, those of the same business, the same family, even the same marriage, will be separated. One is effectually called while the other is passed by. There will be division of wives and husbands, of parents and children, of employers and employees, believers caught up to glory and unbelievers left behind in shame. And that will be the final separation between the sheep and the goats. And the only reason for the salvation of the sheep is God's sovereign grace. That's the only reason. They'll have nothing to boast about except his distinguishing love. Isn't this what the psalmist said in Psalm 115? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And even now we begin to see the evidence of the distinction between the godly and the ungodly. Isn't this one of the wonderful designs of the sacraments? God gives them to distinguish the saints from those who are without. Christians are formally set apart from the rest of the unbelieving world. And of course, I know as well as you do that every baptized person is not converted. There are hypocrites in the church. But the indwelling spirit of God enables the believer to live a different kind of life, very different from the world. And in that case, the sacrament signifies the reality of an inward grace. Just look at the different paths taken by Mannion and his friend Herod. So these five men, they illustrate the ethnic and the cultural diversity of Antioch. And they were all in the church. And God assembled this very diverse group of people. As Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But then Luke goes on to say that the church was worshiping the Lord and fasting. And so it was during public worship that the Holy Spirit in this instance made known his will. We're not told how he did this. Perhaps it was through a prophet. We don't know. But it is noteworthy that the congregation was fasting, a very neglected discipline. This is one of the several instances in the New Testament in which believers were fasting. It was then that they were especially sensitive to the Spirit's leading. 
Remember the prophetess Anna who was fasting when the identity of Jesus was made known to her? How else could she recognize the baby? Jesus himself fasted in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. So there's evidence to suggest that the church is more sensitive when fasting. We fasted the week after 9-11. We had to. This is logical. It makes good sense because everything God does makes sense. When we fast, we suspend our normal activity for focused devotion. It's a time of anticipation and expectation. As we seek the kingdom, we deny ourselves the bread of earth so that we can focus on the bread of heaven. I think that's what fasting is all about. And it's then, as we combine prayer with fasting, that we're more sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. And so the Spirit talks to the church and he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And on the surface, let me just say, do we not see here how this proves the personhood of the Spirit? He's not a mere force. He's not just an influence. The Holy Spirit is a person. Set apart for me, he says. The pronoun me is personal. It designates a person. So the Holy Spirit had a specific work for the two men to perform for him. And let's not miss the fact that it was God, not the church, who took the initiative. The worldwide mission among the Gentiles was instigated by the Lord and the evangelization of the world is not some strategy conceived by the church. The whole enterprise was inaugurated by him. The church just did what it was told. And the question is why? Why did God, the Holy Spirit, initiate the spread of the gospel? Well, because of God's great love for sinners. And I can't explain that. We're told that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But I know and you know that the human race is so deeply and excessively and wickedly sinful that that's hard to understand. I know my heart and you know yours. Who could love a race like ours apart from a God of infinite love. It's R.B. Kuyper who wrote this. It is not that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to accept it, but that the world is so bad that it takes an exceedingly great kind of love to love it at all. We often think of God's majesty, holiness, justice, power, Heaven and earth can't contain him, and he is the Almighty. And he's the one who loves evil, corrupt, and guilty sinners. And there is nothing in us to attract his love. And there is nothing about us that would draw his affection. Nothing. He loves the world simply because he's love. That's the heart of evangelism. 
You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I remember I go off script, and I always am in danger when I go off script, but I'll say it anyway. Gordon Conwell, Christy Wilson, was a professor of world evangelization. He had been a missionary in Afghanistan for 22 years, came back and preached on that text. And with tears in his eyes from the pulpit, he said, he became rich, poor, that you might become rich. And he proved it all because he had given everything. And he lost it all when they kicked him out of Afghanistan when the regime changed. God's initiative for missions is an expression of his infinite love for sinners. That's the only explanation. It's not dependent on its object. It's not because we're good or upright. His love for us has nothing whatsoever to do with who we are. It has everything to do with who he is. And John says that he's love. God loves sinners. He loves those who are despicable. He loves those who are repulsive. And in demonstration of that great truth, he gave his only beloved son. He surrendered and sacrificed the very apple of his eye. Now, I want to tell you something. I love this congregation, and I feel privileged to call you my friends. But I have to make a confession to you. I would never give up my only son or any of my daughters for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) But that's what God did. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. John Irvin, last Sunday night at his membership interview, said, there's no free lunch. And he's right. Somebody has to pay for it. Our everlasting lunch has been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus on a mission of humiliation and suffering and death, and the father heard his son cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was for the salvation of sinners, and that's the heart of evangelism. How do we process that? To what can we compare such love? Charles Wesley, in that one hymn that he wrote, says it this way, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? You know, God's love for sinners is the very heartbeat of world evangelism. Love is what moved him to initiate that mission. Love is what moved him to choose Barnabas and Saul. And out of love, he stirred the church into praying and fasting to send them off. And love is what's behind the free offer of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thank God, those who respond to the terms of salvation will inherit eternal life. Not everyone will respond favorably. The majority is going to reject it. They will depart this life without any hope of escaping God's wrath. God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. 
And if they would only accept God's offer and believe in the Son, they'd be saved from what is inevitable. You see, with infinite condescension, and this is infinite condescension, God, he pleads with them. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So it doesn't matter to me, God says, if you're a murderer or a thief or a prostitute. If you believe, you'll be saved. And that's the fruit of God's infinite and everlasting love. He freely offers to them salvation, but they choose to reject the Son. And that is a sin of infinite proportion. Infinite. And that incurs a penalty of infinite proportion. As Eli said to his rebellious sons, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? There is no one apart from the Lord Jesus himself who can mediate for somebody who sinned against the Lord. And you know who that is? All of us. There is a remnant chosen by God before the foundation of the world who will receive Jesus Christ and he will mediate for them and as high priest, he will intercede for them. They'll recognize their need. They will turn from their sin. They'll put their trust in Jesus as the Savior, the one who was cursed and crucified in place of all of those who believe in him. And those same believers will be born again by the almighty power of the Holy Spirit, and it's a wonderful gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And Paul and Barnabas were commissioned to spread that gospel. And Luke says that in response to the Spirit's leading, the church in Antioch stepped up in faith. Did you see that? After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That was a step of faith because these were two very useful men. They let them go. They were without them. That was no small sacrifice. But in obedience, they commissioned them, they sent them away. And in fact, missions always involve sacrifice for everybody involved. Missionaries leave behind everything that's familiar. Often they go away from family, friends. Churches have to tighten their belts and provide financial support, and they engage in prayer. And they do this because they recognize the supreme importance of the kingdom. They make it the top priority. And you know something? God has given us opportunities to participate. In missions, we have the Dodies in Taiwan. We have the Chases in Japan. We have the Jennings in Senegal and the Hills in Cherokee. And he has given us the opportunity to plant and support this mission church in Kent. John says they've gone out for the sake of the name. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Let me just say something here. You know, it's not easy 
to establish a mission church. It has humble beginnings. And no matter who's at the helm, it's a fragile plant that needs much support. And Redeemer Church has this remarkable privilege of being fellow workers with this church in Kent. It's an incredible thing to have a close, hands-on relationship. We support them financially. We support them with prayer. We encourage them. And this work is not far off, but is practically in our backyard. You know, a few of us can go to Senegal, West Africa. It's a long way away. But we can actually go and worship at Kent. And there is no greater support and there is no greater encouragement than being in person. That's why one member of the session each month attends evening worship at Christ Pres in Kent. And I think it's a great opportunity for everyone to attend at least occasionally. You know, few realize just how encouraging it is to have people shoulder to shoulder worshiping together. John Colbert asked me one time, this is years ago, what can I do to help you? And my immediate response was, show up. That's the best encouragement. And I encourage you, if you're able, sometimes attend CPC in the evening. Their worship is pleasing. I've been there. Their sermons are edifying. And those people are outstanding, wonderful people that we've interviewed for membership. And it doesn't mean you have to join or transfer your membership. It's not an all or nothing option. You may want to, and that's fine if you do, but there's another option. You can simply attend and join their worship occasionally and be on the ground floor of something that's going to be truly great. And you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you are a fellow worker for the truth. Richard Sewell says this, I love this quote. Men are honored who fight the battles for their country, who make discoveries in science, who improve the arts of civilized life. But I tell you, he says, to have lived the truth, to have contributed to the advancement of the truth, will count for more in the eternity of the future than all the wreaths of honor that victors ever won or all the wealth that the millionaire has ever amassed. The church at Antioch commended them to the grace of God for this work, and it was a formal and official commission to evangelize the world. I think one application is simply this, that we ought to rejoice and give thanks for the unwavering and steadfast love of the Lord. He sent his son as savior of the world. He sends messengers to the world with the gospel and he wants the free offer of salvation to reach the four corners of the globe so that sinners from all nations have the opportunity to believe and be saved. The Holy Spirit has sometimes been called the executive of the Trinity. Into his hands, God has placed the work to effectually call sinners. And through the word, he convinces and he humbles and he sanctifies sinful people. And the spirit not only has the power to do it, but the love to ensure it. That was the beginning of worldwide missions. 
And at that point in history, think of it, there were no Christians in Europe or Asia or America. When they commissioned these two men, no Christians anywhere else. The kingdom of God just started to advance. But Jesus said, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Have you ever thought about that? The gates of hell? Hell's gates, they're not offensive weapons. They're defensive means. Hell's gates. So Jesus is saying that the church will advance despite satanic opposition. And the work of worldwide evangelization will overcome the adversary. Those gates are not going to keep us out. And that's because God's love is infinite and eternal and steadfast. But then secondly and finally, let's appreciate God's sovereignty in the application of redemption. We see it here. It was the Holy Spirit who directed the church to send out those messengers. And that's the way it happened then, and that's the way it happens now. Christ, by his Spirit, calls and equips those who are sent to preach the gospel. And we support them. He inclines them to it, he supplies them for it, and he guides them in it. And directed by the Spirit, under the blessing of Christ, they labor in the vineyard, and that's fruit. God is sovereign in this work. He makes fruitful the gospel ministry, and we should always remember that he is the source of new life. The Spirit chooses when and where and in whom the new birth occurs, because God has his own plans for the advance of the kingdom, and the Spirit organizes every campaign, and we, receive on, we wait on him to receive our orders. That's what we do. So the rest of the book of Acts will show what kind of power attended their mission. But for now, we understand and give thanks for the sovereignty of God who loves and saves sinners. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, which is everlasting, invincible, and steadfast, which means that there's nothing that can separate us from Christ. We thank you for that because we know our own hearts. We know how unstable and unfaithful we can be. We thank you and praise you that you are ever faithful. Please receive our praise, for we do sing it with hearts that are filled with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.